have um, noted <coughs> that Resurrection Sunday falls on another auspicious holiday, April Fool's. There have been all kinds of pundits who have said how appropriate that the Christian high holiday, religious day, is on a day when fools are celebrated. That's got to make you feel good, right? Others have commented that it is um, the world itself that was fooled because they thought Christ was dead in Sunday morning. Surprise! <clears throat> it doesn't take a whole lot of reflection to understand that this day is viewed from a very different perspective, whether you're a person of faith or not. One of the things that's, that I, I find interesting is there, there is a whole class of people within our country today who don't consider themselves religious, yet they will find themselves in church on Easter Sunday. So congratulations, while you may be in denial, you are religious. Maybe not very religious, right? Th this may be one of the only times this year, unless someone dies, that you find yourself in church. But you are at least admittedly, maybe a tad bit curious. And I said this earlier, but, but I, I think it's true. I think a lot of times, no one, even the most pious Christian, does not take the reality of the cross, the, the resurrection, as seriously as they should. And the, the reason I can say that is you have probably gone most of the minutes and seconds of this week without thinking about the cross, right? Now, what percentage of your time 168 hours this week have you spent thinking about what Christ has done for you on the cross? Some of you would be pretty impressed with 10 minutes, right? We don't, even as Christian people, take it seriously. Even less do the realities of the cross translate into how we solve our problems, right? Like, I mean, problem hits, what do you do? Anybody freak out? We got any freak outers here? Oh, I freak out depending on how big the problem is, right? I mean, any of you watch the stock market over the last couple of days and kind of watch the, ooh, it's like a roller coaster ride. If your hope is in your finances, how does faith translate into action? I think there's a number of ways that we could address that. But today, we're going to talk about a story related to uh, the resurrection of Christ that I don't think will be a new story for you. You've heard probably all of the details about this. My, my prayer is regardless of where you find yourself, whether you consider yourself a religious person or not a religious person, you just happen to be in church on Easter Sunday, I hope that today what you hear, you will hear afresh with new ears and that God's Spirit will take God's Word and, 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 and cause it to, to help us to reflect in a way that you leave here not as busted and broken up as you walked in here. Every single one of us, myself included, walked in here busted and broken. The problem is some of you <laughs> are working your darndest to not show what terrible shape you're in. Like, we already know it. God already knows it. Have you wrestled with your own brokenness and brought it to the Lord? So, four vignettes talking about Christ's life and his death that I think are important for us to remember. We're going to be in John's Gospel, chapter 19, uh, looking at verses 17 through 30. <clears throat> and I'll begin with those, those first couple of verses. John 19, verses 17 through 18. And when we talk about the resurrection, we cannot have a conversation about that 
without considering the terrible nature of Jesus' death. Um, there are terrible ways to die. But let me just say on the front end, the, the, the crucifixion is one of the most masochistic and intentionally terrible ways to think about extinguishing the life of another human being. Listen to how John records it. It's kind of interesting. As John talks about the terrible nature of Jesus' death, here's what he has to say. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, Jesus between them. We're talking about the crucifixion of our Lord. And John, in very succinct fashion, covers it in two verses. How long did it take me to read that? 15 seconds? In one of the most momentous occasions in all of human history is dealt with so succinctly. There's all kinds of intrigue that went into it. You had the Jewish religious leaders that kind of liked him, sort of, and then didn't like him. You have the religious populace that just a week ago were praising him, and now they're calling for his crucifixion. You have Pilate, who is playing politics, trying to figure out how he can stay in office and, and not commit murder of an innocent man, but yet satisfy his constituents. So Pilate has tried to evade what was inevitably coming for Jesus, and yet when the crowd calls for it and he sees that, uh, I'm going to give him a chance to, I'll, I'll, I'll release a mass murderer or I'll release a religious teacher, they choose the mass murderer to be set free. Pilate's evasions have come to an end. So as part of the crucifixion process, he has Jesus mercilessly beaten and then handed over to be crucified. There were really four, four parts of the crucifixion process. Uh, one was the stripping down. Uh, typically, a person would be um, uh, crucified, to speak southern, stark naked. Naked as a jaybird. Because the idea was not just to punish you, it was to humiliate you. It was to shame you. And perhaps they would permit you a little Tarzan-like loincloth to, to preserve the slimmest margin of decency and dignity. So they would strip you, they would beat you, and uh, listen, uh, nobody besides Indiana Jones uses whips nowadays, but it was a, it was a whip that would, we would have called a cat of nine tails, where it had nine strands to it. So anytime you hit someone, you could potentially uh, tear their flesh nine times with one whip. And they had rock and um, metal and glass embedded into that, so it would c just completely lacerate. It would look like someone had taken a pillar to your back. Raw meat, just terrible. Then they would have you carry your cross. Now, a lot of people think that we would pick this entire implement up and you're carrying the whole T-shaped thing. M most likely, it was just the crossbar that was carried. And, and in this um, story, there's, there's, there's some differences in how the different gospel writers handle this. Because in John's, John handles it very succinctly. So he's not including a whole lot of variety of perspectives. John is trying to say, Jesus goes to his death willingly and with compulsion, he faces it like a man. John does not say Jesus ex only and exclusively carried his cross the entire way. We know from the other Gospels that uh, a man who was visiting for Passover, Simon of Cyrene, had, uh, was conscripted, he, he didn't volunteer, was conscripted to carry Christ's cross part of the way. And, and there's a part of us, I think, that we so romanticize the, the, the crucifixion uh, and we sing about it like, oh, what a, 
good guy that Simon is, you know. Hey, little kids that traveled with Simon, watch what your dad does. Stepping in for Jesus. No, this was no mercy. He did not want to do it. He was forced by sword point to do it. And this was no mercy offered to Jesus. The only reason Simon was conscripted is that the Romans were such experts at torture that they did not want you to die from the loss of bodily fluid and the exhaustion that you already have faced. They didn't want you to die on the way before they had the opportunity to crucify you. To put it into modern day terms, if they had AEDs, they would let you carry the crossbar till you fell over, and then they would revive you. Even though the point of execution is to kill you, they would have revived you simply to be able to have the opportunity to crucify you. Wicked and sadistic. Part of the shame was carrying the own instrument to which you would be affixed. And so the stripping, the beating, the carrying, and then the actual attachment uh, by nail point, by railroad tie, so to speak, to the cross. There are medical doctors that have written, uh, well, not volumes, I'm, uh, I'm aware of one article, that it is not G-rated, talking about the, the, the spasms as um, your wrists are pierced in the radial nerve system that is there that would cause convulsions to happen as you are attached by three spikes and not lifted high, probably not much higher than this. The, they only needed you to be high enough to get your feet off the ground. And so people think, you know, he lifted up really super high. No, feet are probably three feet off the ground. I mean, that would that'd be enough. They didn't need to waste time uh, or effort building a big cross. A small one would do. One of the things besides the physical torture and just the pressure, emotional, psychological pressure, is Jesus is additionally shamed by being crucified with two other criminals. And we don't know why. Why were they crucified that day? You know, why couldn't, why couldn't Good Friday have been exclusively Jesus's, pardon the crass term, his real estate? We, we don't know. But it makes the ignominious nature of Christ's crucifixion even worse when he is crucified with people that are commonly referred to as robbers or thieves, or in worst cases, guerrilla fighters who were um, part of this anti-Roman kind of alt-right movement that didn't want outside government, you know, from Rome ruling over uh, the Holy Lands. And so they were stealing to supply this guerrilla warfare movement and were caught. What I find fascinating about the way John talks about this is he does not emotionalize it, he does not sensationalize it, he does not romanticize it. It's very synced succinct and he just says he was crucified but within that statement that he was crucified is a whole lot of information about a a terrible painful torturous death that is the precursor to what we have the opportunity to celebrate this morning number two consider not just the terrible nature of his death but consider the truth told in the statement now, what statement am I talk, talking about? Talking about the inscription that Pilate put above Jesus' head. Look with me at verses 19 through 21. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Hey, don't write, king of the Jews. 
Why don't you write instead, this man said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. All of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all include some kind of notation about the inscription, but only John notes the languages. Written in Aramaic, which was the language of the common people. If it had happened in South Carolina, it would have been with a southern drawl. Um, Aramaic just happened to be the language of the people. So the language of the population. It was written in Latin because that was the language of Pilate. He was a Roman procurator over the territory of what we would call uh, Judea, Palestine, the Holy Lands. Written in um, Greek because that was kind of the language of commerce. So today, you can go to foreign countries and do business in English because they've learned if their country wants to excel, they need to learn the language of commerce, which in most places is English. What's interesting is the inscription is supposed to be the charge against you. So, guilty of whatever. Public drunkenness, debauchery, adultery, um, thievery, uh, whatever it is, uh, bank robbery. Um, <laughs> he worked for Enron. You know, whatever it was that was his thing, there was supposed to be a charge against him. But did you see what Pilate wrote? No charge. It was a title. Jesus of Nazareth, historically and geographically true. King of the Jews. Theologically full of significance. No charge against him. It's ironic that while Jesus' message was that he was the creator of all that is and uh, lifted up to be a light to, uh, to, to all, uh, the savior of men is rejected by the Jews that he came to primarily. And yet here in his death, Pilate makes a universal declaration in every language that he knew about the truthfulness of who Christ was. This declaration doesn't come from the disciples. It doesn't even come from Jesus' lips. It comes from Pilate. It comes from the government. So this is living proof that the government can tell the truth, even if it's unintentional. They spoke words of truth in this statement about who Jesus is. And I love it because behind the scenes, Pilate had been involved in all of this subterfuge his wife even came to him and had a dream about Jesus. And she said, don't have anything to do with that innocent man. And he, 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 he wants to find a way to free Jesus. Yet because of political correctness and wanting to appease the populace, he lacked the courage during Jesus' trial to do the right thing. Yet once he writes the inscriptions and it ticks the Jewish religious leaders off, Pilate finally manages to scrounge up some backbone. Oh, uh, he's innocent, but you want to kill him? Okay. Oh, well, don't say he's the king of the Jews. Say that he said he's the king of the Jews. And he finally sticks his chest out and crosses his arm and says, What I have written, I have written. History would be different if Pilate had a little moral courage just a little bit earlier in the whole story. Number three, consider the great contrast in the crowd. It's not uncommon for... Uh, the crucifixion. Crucifixion is a public event. Um, you've seen the movie with Russell Crowe about the gladiator. Hundreds of th- 100,000 people packed in to watch men kill each other. In the same sense, um, the Wild West, when, when uh, a criminal was hung by the neck 
in a gallows. The town would gather for this very shameful but very public execution. So not uncommon for it to happen. It says that it happens right outside the city along the highway coming in. So it was intended to be a living illustration, a warning against potential 'er ne'er-do-wells. Hey, we take our law seriously. And if you break it, you could be the next one to hang. Uh, Look with me at verses 23 and 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. As I've mentioned, they're uh, not uncommon for crowds to gather at a crucifixion. And specifically in this passage, we'll be told about two groups that gathered. Now, we know that there were more than that. The Jewish religious leaders were there. As we'll see in just a few minutes, there was a small group of women that were there. But this very first couple of verses, verse 23 and 24, talk about the soldiers who were there. And what did the soldiers do? You think about, if your family... All generations of them gathered at the city hall today for a public execution. Whether you were for it or against it, it's still a terrible thing, right? I don't know how you would get that image out of your eye. And yet the soldiers, in a way that is completely casual and absolutely crass to the situation that is happening, are going garage sale shopping, right? Apparently, Jesus had five articles of clothing. There were four soldiers. So somebody took his sandals, somebody took his belt, somebody took his undergarment, um, somebody took his shirt, and then there was this tunic, all woven in one piece. So the, the diplomatic thing to do would be to take that tunic woven in one piece and rip it into four pieces. But then it doesn't really do any good. It's just a rag now. So they said, hey, let's each take a piece, but that, um, that, that tunic, that fifth piece, how are we going to decide who gets that? You know what they do? They play paper, rock, scissors for Jesus' tunic. They cast lots. And, And in a way that is despicable, as these men are dying, wheezing their last breaths, they are going, wow, honey, you're not gonna believe the bargain I got today. I got a tunic. It's incredible. No sadness, no remorse. Yet here's the thing that is remarkable. If you look at verse uh, 24, it says that this most despicable of events, as heinous as it is for us to think about, was a fulfillment of prophecy. Here's the thing that is amazing, and I think if you can get this, especially some of some of you that w- would not maybe consider yourselves of the most religious variety. There is no problem with us believing God being involved in the glorious resurrection of Christ. Like we expect the God of the universe to perform miracles, right? Like for us who are religious, a miracle is uh, certainly maybe not according to the normal operation of the physical world, but God is not constrained by the box. He can do things outside of the box. So for me to hear that somebody was resurrected is it's not a leap of faith for me. God has the ability to do that. 
where we struggle is understanding that God was actually involved on Friday. We have a problem believing God was involved on Sunday. But where's God when you suffer from depression? Where's God when you lose your job? God was just as involved with the crucifixion of Christ as he was with the resurrection. And even as these soldiers play paper, rock, scissors for Jesus' clothes, the Bible says it was done to fulfill Scripture. That is mind-boggling to understand that God is sovereign even over the darkest things that happen. Look at verses 25 and 27 through 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. This is the second group of people, a group of women. And there is some debate over whether four or five women are being discussed here. That is losing the forest for the trees. Among this group of women is Jesus' mother. And uh, we all know it is a tragedy of epic proportions for a parent to outlive their kids. It doesn't matter that it's Jesus. It is no less tragic. Simeon's prophecy about a sword will pierce your heart when Jesus was born. Mary is um, living out that prophecy as well as she is watching her firstborn son, her eldest son, die. Some uh, wonder, what is this deal about Jesus not calling her mother? Do you see what he said? Woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. I don't think Jesus was being disrespectful in the least. That's not his intention. Jesus is being crucified as a common criminal. And by not identifying her as mother, he is preserving and shielding her from some of the shame that would necessarily be reflected upon her if she was too closely identified with the man who handed her kids. So this was not, woman, go make me a sandwich. This was a kindness. To not identify her with him in such a way that, oh, well, if he's a rebel, maybe we need to get her too. She's a widow, perhaps with no source of income, perhaps wholly and totally dependent upon her eldest son who right now is close to breathing his very last. You can't blame Mary for wondering, well, what happens to me now? Beyond the tragedy of loss, what happens to me now? And Jesus proves dutiful to the very end in making provision for his mom. Here's what's interesting. Two crowds of people, the soldiers, the women, and everyone is there for their own purposes, right? Everyone's there for their own purposes. Soldiers are there because it's their job. The women are there because of their grief. Everyone, both the pious and the unpious, are there because they have their own issues. Job or grief. And yet, Jesus serves others while he's dying. As if dying on the cross and securing eternal salvation is not enough. With his dying breath, he serves other people to the soldiers who crucified him. We know from the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus prayed, Father, 
Forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Jesus' enemies didn't ask or request forgiveness, yet Jesus offered it to them, knew that they were doing their duty, and were mindless in even thinking about it. This was just another day at work. To the thief on the cross who became penitent and realized that he was justly being compensated for his crime, realized that Jesus had committed no crime and reviled the other criminal who reviled Jesus and mocked him. And to that thief on the cross, Jesus said, Today, I promise you, you will be in paradise with me, serving the soldiers who crucified him, serving the thief who dies alongside him. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Mom, John's going to take care of you. Serving people to the end. What I love is the beloved disciple is John, the guy who wrote the gospel. Yet he's so humble about himself, he doesn't write himself into his own story. He, he refers to himself in third person. And here's, here's the question for you. Not that Jesus came solely for the purpose of setting an example for us, though he certainly did this. Jesus served people with his dying breath. And my question for you is, how bad does your day have to get before you stop thinking about others? Like some of you, if the coffee's not brewed strong enough, like your day is ruined and like don't cross you. For some of you, if your commute to work is bad, you show up and you're in a foul mood for the rest of the day. I mean, think about this. Jesus is on the cross. He has no mobility and yet he's serving people while he's dying. And for some of you, you would have to be dying before you would consider serving other people. We are so fragile that our goodness evaporates like a mist by just the smallest bump in the road throwing us off of our A-game. And listen, it, it, and I, it, I, I want to communicate to you, whether you consider yourself a religious person or not, your goodness is far less than you think it is by about a thousand degrees. What does it take for you to get cross? What does it take for you not to serve others? Do you consider the needs of others as above your own needs? Because if anyone had a pass for not serving others, Jesus, while he's dying on the cross, qualifies. I think we'd all give Jesus a pass, say, hey man, just kind of let it go. You're all right. But no, soldiers, I forgive you. Thief, he's coming with me. It's going to be great. You're not going to enjoy the wait, but it's going to be great. Mom, don't worry. You'll be taken care of. The thing that we have to consider the most is not just his example and how things happened in the crowd or the truth as beautiful as it is, it was stated to, about him by a pagan or the terrible nature of his death. Fourth, we have to consider the incredible accomplishment in his death. Look with me at verses 28 and 29. After this, after the statement to his mom, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture... I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and they held it to his breath. 
If you know anything about the start of Jesus' ministry, he went to the Jordan River, was baptized by John the Baptist, and immediately after his baptism, he went on a fabulous multi-city preaching circuit. No, he didn't. He was compelled by the Spirit immediately to go into the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He began his ministry with a gnawing hunger, and he ends it with a raging thirst. Think of the dehydration as he has lost all of these bodily fluids, blood, and whatever else comes out of your body when you are broken and busted like that. The tension of the trials, the desertion of your friends, the exhaustion from the whipping, now the demands placed upon an overtaxed uh, nervous system as you are dying slowly and painfully. While he is very God of very God, he is also very man of very man. And he is experiencing everything that is common to us from the cradle to the grave. Born and fragile, dying a terrible death. And as he hangs there dying, because he he doesn't die like you or I would die. He doesn't die croaking. He doesn't die groveling. He dies serving others. He surveys the scene, and while his life force is ebbing out of him, he's serving people. And so I think as he hangs there dying, he reviews he reviews his life, maybe his 33 plus years, maybe just the three years of his ministry, maybe even just the last few hours. And he hangs on the cross, cognizant of the fact that he can say something that no one else can say. He has fully obeyed God the Father. Every detail. He has loved the people. God has told me, he says, of all those that you've given me, I've not, not lost one. That's an amazing thing to say. He has touched people that people have said are untouchable, and he's shown them love. He has taught the things that have amazed people. They said he taught like no one has ever taught. He has been patient, even with his disciples, who never really fully got it. Every prediction about him has come true, from being born of a virgin to being born in Bethlehem. Everything about him has come true, except for one thing. We're told in the Psalms that our our, our delight, the man of God, his delight is in the law of the Lord. You think that that wasn't true of Christ? So he he ponders through these psalms that he has meditated on in life, and he recalls that there is a prophecy about his thirst. And Jesus was offered wine before he was crucified. It was a narcotic-laced wine to deaden the pain, and he doesn't want to not fully experience everything that he's supposed to experience, so he refuses it. But now it says that he self-consciously asked for a drink for the purpose of fulfilling Scripture. And you sit there and go, well, that's dumb. No, 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 no. You're missing the point. Jesus is so desiring for all of his life to be in complete conformity with Scripture that before he utters his last words, he says, I thirst because it's what the Scripture said he would do. Obeyed down to the detail. Let me ask you this. When you have a job to do, are you tempted to find a shortcut? Are you tempted to cut a corner or two? Jesus so desired to obey and demonstrate his love for the Father that he sought to bring every square inch of his life in conformity to the Scriptures. It's beautiful to see. And that brings us to the last verse, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. 
And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The other Gospels say that he cried out with a loud voice, perhaps revived, perhaps parched, you know, his parching quenched. He calls out with a loud voice, revived, and says, it's finished, and offers up his spirit. Not a cry of defeat, but an announcement of victory. In English, three words, it is finished. In Greek, one, to telestai. And it would not be an overstatement to call this the most important single word ever uttered. But what does it mean? What was finished? Well, there's a variety of things that we could say. Number one, his life and certainly his current suffering was over. I mean, in the same sentence, it says he cried out, he hung his head, bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. His life and his current suffering was over. I think in some ways this was a sigh of relief. Think about this, from eternity past, from eternity past, going all the way back forever, he was looking forward to a cross. The closer it got, the more stress he felt. In the Garden of Gethsemane, breathing drops of blood, saying, Father, if it be your will, take this cup away from me. Yet if it is your will, your will be done, not mine. Now, it's over. And the cross anticipated from eternity past will now for eternity future be in the past as an accomplishment. His absence from heaven and all of his divine rights, his absence from his Father is complete. Number two, not just his life and suffering, but his life work of incarnating God's message was complete. There's a wonderful thing that happens when you are in school. It's called, Donovan, graduation. Yeah, he's getting, he's getting Pentecostal over there. Woo, graduation. Graduation means there's no more lessons to be taught. John says early in John chapter 1 that, that Jesus came to explain God to us. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Christ. He has taught us everything that he's needed to ta- teach us. And this last lesson of his sacrificial giving of himself will be the hardest lesson to get. Uh, the disciples would fail it, but they, get, they got a retest. They got the opportunity to take it over again and get it right. But there are no more lessons to be taught. School is over. The course is finished. His life message, he's taught everything about God that he's needed to teach. His life is over. His life work is done. But thirdly and most importantly is this. Through his death, redemption had been purchased. It was not just a death, it was an offering. As a matter of fact, the the language even kind of implies that he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. You'll note this, that there there is no gospel account that says simply Jesus died. It's not in there. Jesus says, I lay my life down, I pick it back up again. He has the ability to do that. He offered his life. So what does it mean when we say that he accomplished our redemption? Uh, Four things quickly. It means that the sacrifice of his life had been accepted. He was offering his life as a sacrifice in our place. And when he said it is finished, it means the debt was paid in full. He has taken care of it. God, the Father, has accepted the Son's sacrifice. Number two, it means that the Father's rightful wrath and justice had been satisfied. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath and drank it all down so that those who have faith in Christ would never have to taste one drop of it. Drank it down to the dregs. As a matter of fact, there is not one more drop of sacrificial blood that is ever required. The veil at the temple is torn in two. The Passover, uh, from a Christian perspective, does not exist anymore because Christ, as the Lamb of God, has been 
fully and finally, the perfect sacrifice has been offered. The Passover is now replaced with the Lord's Supper. Things have changed. Jesus had done what God, what Jesus had done what man could not do, obey God perfectly and offer up a sacrifice in our place. Number three, because his sacrifice had been accepted, because God's wrath and justice had been satisfied, forgiveness for man's sin had now been granted. Had been granted. And fourth, and just icing on the cake, Satan was defeated. You go back to Genesis chapter 3, you don't have to get very far in the book to find out that everything gets messed up because man in his own sovereignty uses his freedom in a bad way. We choose to rebel against God and every single one of us down the line have done the same thing. And wouldn't you know that Satan, with all of his devilish ingenuity and demonic creativity, has done everything he can at every step of the way to frustrate God's plan. Listen, God doesn't, uh, Satan doesn't want to necessarily make you an apostate. He just wants to get you one degree off course because he knows if he gets you one degree off course for 20 years, you'll be miles away from your destination. So sometimes Satan's most insidious strategy is not to make you a denier. It's to make you one degree off where it sounds like you're close enough to the real thing, but you're not. And you're headed for a completely different destination. He has used all of his energy and all of his creativity to frustrate God's plan. And at the cross, Satan thinks he has gotten to the moment of his greatest victory, which turns out to be his most crushing defeat. Because he doesn't understand that Jesus says, I can lay my life down again and I can pick it back up. No one, no one, not Pilate, not the Jews, not the centurions, took his life. He offered it. He handed it over. He has laid it down. And we celebrate this day because he's taken it up again. The victim on the cross became the victor through the cross. And that is the message of Easter for you today. If you have realized that life is hard, it's difficult, if you have realized your goodness is not as good as you think it is, if you have realized that you living life the way you think it should work, listen, there is no, not even your spouse agrees that life should go the way you think it does. Nobody agrees with you. Think about how bad life is with everybody trying to do what is right in their own eyes and nobody agrees what's right. It's a dog-eat-dog world. And if you can for a moment realize that living life the way you want to is not what God wants for you, it is not in conformity with God's word, you will either be a victim of life or you will be a victor through the cross. Jesus looked like a victim. And let me tell you, there's a lot of people out there that look like victims to circumstance. The victory comes through the cross. Now that means a whole lot of things, whether you consider yourself a religious person or a not religious person. If you're a religious person, shame on us for believing that God can save our souls, but he can't help us with our problems in life. What are you not believing in God for? Because exercising faith, friends, listen, exercising faith is not a history lesson that happens once in the past. Exercising faith is what we're supposed to do. 
practicing righteousness. It's continual. It's ongoing. It's, 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 it's a process. It's not, well, I walked an aisle 20 years ago at camp and I'm good. No, don't, don't deceive yourself. You might not possess what you say you profess. The message of Easter is awesome because uh, the Bible says we rejoice with those who rejoice, we weep with those who weep. God is just as glorified and sovereign over Resurrection Sunday as he is over Good Friday. Let me tell you why that's good news. And some of you may have had a great week. Listen, the sun's out, it's a beautiful day, and it's amazing how much that can affect people's attitudes. It's a good day because it's not cloudy. Um, Man, I pray for you because it's not going to be sunshiny every day. So you may have an experience that's up here top-notch. Guess what? It's not going to last. I don't know when it's coming, but you're not going to stay at 14,000 feet. Some of you aren't at 14,000 feet. You're at 3,000 below sea level. Life has kicked you in the gut, and now while you're on the ground gasping, it's stepped on your throat. You're at the Good Friday. This person's at Resurrection Sunday. Situations will reverse. This person will be down here, and this person will be up here. God is involved in every spectrum, not just your destiny, but how life is managed and where you find yourself at the mountaintop of the valley of life. And the person who has faith trusts God even through the valley of the shadow of death. Not just on Sunday morning. Not just 20 years ago when you went to a camp and you waited to the very last night when they jacked you up on caffeine and kept you up all week to make a decision for Christ. No, a decision for Christ is not made in that moment. A decision for Christ is made when you walk out of here and how you drive home and how you treat your family and how you engage with the word and the world and how you make values from the Bible the values for how you run your life. That's what faith is. If Easter is about trusting in him and not trusting in yourself, how are you doing? I see a lot of people that put their faith in Christ, but you know when a problem hits, it's all on me. I got to fix this. I got to deal with this. No, you trust in Christ, not in yourself, and that's not a one-time event. Have you placed your faith in Christ? Is he making a difference in your life? Because just as he was the victim on the cross, he became the victor through the cross, and that power and that encouragement and that fellowship and that forgiveness, it extended even to enemies who crucified him. He offers to all who will call upon his name today. Let's pray for the church. Fathers, we have the opportunity here to sing of your resurrection power and how you have once and for all defeated death. God, in our souls we rejoice. It is not often that we are honest enough with ourselves about the realities of life in this world. Uh, Sometimes if we read the news, we are really convinced that it's spinning out of control we're really convinced that it's messed up but it's always someone else's problem oh if those republicans or those democrats or those arabs or those israelis or those russians or those congressmen it's never us and yet father when we stop to reflect on what the biggest problem with the world is it's it's me it's us The reason that the world is broken is because collectively we are rebels against your way. And I pray today that you help us to wave the white flag and to say, Father, we surrender to you. We can't beat you. We certainly can't do better than you. We recognize our shortcomings. We recognize our sin and our rebellion and we come to you 
and we offer you the broken pieces of our life. Say, God, you made it, and we trust that you can recreate it. You can remake it, because we can't. Whether religious or irreligious, we both have brokenness that we can bring to you. And I pray that as we sing, that we can offer it to you and watch the miracles that you can work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.